0: As I get myself set up, I've got a story for you. There's a second grade teacher who gave an assignment to her class for the students to bring an item from home that represented their religious background. She was wanting to teach the kids about diversity in religious backgrounds and worshiping God and that there's lots of different ways to do that. And so at show and tell time, the kids began to share with their particular item of faith meant to them. And the first kid to go was a Catholic child who brought some rosary beads and shared it with the class about how they used those beads in prayer. And then there was a Native American child who brought a dream catcher to school with them. And there They talked about how you place the dream catcher over your head to capture the dreams that you have in the night, and it would filter out the bad ones and hold on to the good ones in their memory. And a Jewish child stood up and brought a candle and told told the class about Hanukkah and how they celebrate Hanukkah. And then there is a kid who pulled some food out of his bag, and he said, I'm a covenanter, and this is a chicken casserole. There are so many misconceptions about what it means to be the church, as illustrated in my story about bringing chicken casserole. It's true the church doesn't always get it right. But we have an opportunity to step back and discern. We can imagine what the future of our church is going to look like. Do we want to be known for our chicken casserole? Or does God have something greater for us? What do you think is the most important thing that God calls us to do? If I let you answer the question, I'd probably have at least 60 different responses. My friend Paul asked me this question more than 15 years ago, and I remember the moment he asked. It hit me. I've always been the straight-laced, goody-two-shoes student, while my friend Paul was this punk rock dude with long, curly hair. And we had very little in common. The only thing we had in common was our love for Jesus Christ. We had wonderful conversations, albeit sometimes odd, about our faith, and about what it might mean for us to follow Jesus. But after that, our paths diverged very quickly. I grew up in a covenant church, but I attended a fundamental Baptist high school, which means that I could only memorize out of the King James Version. It means that I went to a Baptist university and I went to church on Sunday nights at a Baptist church. I went to a Baptist megachurch as a young adult. I earned a degree, almost, in potlucks. My friend Paul, on the other hand, grew up in a or spent—he came to faith later in life, but he had a charismatic background. And he was all about, and very focused on, in his punk rock persona, this growing faith that he had, he had a raw and passionate love for Jesus Christ that defied what I thought was typical Christianity, and I found it to be very refreshing. So when he asked this question, what do you think is the most important thing that God calls us to do, I answered through my Baptist lens, and I said, it's evangelism. We're all here to advance God's kingdom. That's the most important thing. But Paul disagreed with me, and he said, no. I think the answer to this question is love. I now agree with him, too, and I've changed my opinion. It might seem simplistic, but it's not a wrong answer to say that it's love. When the religious leaders of Jesus' day hit him with the same question in Mark 12, it was, it, Jesus' answer was clear and convicting. The most important commandment answered Jesus is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Now, if you're anything like me and you grew up up half Baptist and half Covenant, you know that evangelism has always been a major emphasis for the Covenant Church. Within the Covenant alone over the last few decades, we've been developing evangelism training programs. We have resources out there that we've developed so that um, we can encourage churches to practice evangelism. The most recent one was called BLESS. We ask our pastors in the covenant to preach on evangelism from the pulpit. For a number of evangelical churches, evangelism is the answer to this question. An outreach ministry doesn't, it's dead on arrival if evangelism doesn't have a component to our outreach ministry. There are so many evangelical universities that are setting up, even still today, door-to-door evangelism and revivals and requiring attendance of their students. I attended one of those evangelical universities. You see where I'm going with this. On the other side, we have this justice-only mentality. And there's people in Christian circles that have almost abandoned the practice of evangelism in favor of social justice initiatives. My friend Paul came out of one of these churches. And he, as he read Jesus' response in Scripture to love people and make them feel loved, that was his ultimate mission. Christians in these circles are focused on racial reconciliation. They're reaching out to the poor. They're engaging in political causes. They're engaged in community initiatives. They're encouraging religious practices, but often they do so without presenting the gospel. Now, in these churches, you clearly see their mark in the local community as well as our global community, and yet their gospel convictions are not always well-known. The term social gospel has often been criticized in evangelical churches. In many cases, we don't want to push our faith on people, but we do want to help meet their physical needs. Now, the church at large has been addressing matters of evangelism and justice for a really long time, since Pentecost, actually. There are years and years where Christians have found themselves either in the evangelism camp or the justice camp, And they're promoting one or the other. And as a result, we now have significant groups of believers who fearlessly spread the gospel without ever addressing physical needs. And we have others who are sacrificially giving themselves to the poor, and they're never sharing the gospel that's at the heart of their work. And you can't tell me that this debate is over, because just last month, there was a prominent evangelical leader, John MacArthur, who filled up my news feed last month because he argued that social justice is a threat to the gospel. He had 700 evangelical leaders sign that statement. And there's at least 700 other evangelical leaders that disagree with him. So we're still in this battle between evangelism and justice. But rather than what John MacArthur says, what what we really want to know today is what does Jesus say? With both evangelism and justice are important works. Neither is meant to be done in isolation from each other. And Jesus, we know, never shies away from intertwining evangelism and justice. He never shies away from preaching against sin and the depth of God's grace and our invitation to follow him. And Jesus never shies away from advocating for the widow or treating the poor with dignity Or feeding the hungry. As Jesus addresses the physical and emotional symptoms in the society of his day, he continually speaks to their deeply rooted spiritual needs as well. When you read through the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus never falls into one of these two camps. His preaching and his outreach always go hand-in-hand. At the end of the day, it's difficult to relevantly share the gospel without addressing physical and social issues that impact people. But it's also a missed opportunity to demonstrate healing without pointing someone to the healer. Luke chapter 4, if you're using your Bibles. Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth after gaining some notoriety for his work in other parts of Israel. He appears to have been asked to be the guest preacher that day in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And then we don't have a lot of details about that worship service But we in Luke chapter 4. But we do know from early synagogue services, the format would have been fairly similar to what we use today. There would have been some singing, although no organ, no guitar. There would have been some singing. They would have certainly read the same words that we read from Mark 12. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, your God, the Lord is one. And then, like us, they have a series of readings, and the sermon is usually given on the final reading. So Jesus stands up to read, is what we're told in Scripture, and that he's handed the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. It's is a really long book. So that means they probably came in three scrolls, in which case Jesus was handed the third one and he unrolls this scroll right down towards the end where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. And then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and we're told that Jesus sits down. This means he sat down to preach. In those days, the preacher sat down in the preacher chair when they preached. It was located front and center in the synagogue, and the eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fixed on him to hear his sermon on this passage. Today, says Jesus, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing that's it. Sermon is over. Jesus returns to his pew, presumably now having broken the record for the shortest sermon ever preached in that synagogue, and everyone is somewhat shocked. I know short sermons are always a crowd pleaser. You're not in luck today. But there was something else something more than the compactness of this sermon that got the attention of the congregation in Nazareth on that Sabbath morning. text that Jesus chose for his sermon was taken from Isaiah 61, what we've already read. It's part of a fuller passage of promises for a better day. The Babylonians had conquered the people of Israel. They are shattered people, and they have been dispossessed of their land, and the prophet Isaiah is proclaiming the dawning of a new age, an age of healing and peace, where the oppressed are going to find freedom, where the poor are finally going to be able to get back on their feet. Now there's a couple things worth noting about the way Jesus handled this reading. It was customary to choose between 3 and 23 verses in length when you're going to preach a sermon or read something. And what did Jesus read? Only the first two verses. He, Jesus didn't shorten the reading. Actually, he stopped in the middle of verse 2 of Isaiah 61 to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. If you're looking in your Bibles at Isaiah 61, verse 2, you will see that the verse goes on, Jesus cut it off, but the verse goes on to speak about judgment on the Gentiles. And Jesus leaves that out, and he concludes instead with the proclamation, the acceptable year of the Lord, almost certainly a reference to the Jubilee year of Leviticus chapter 25. So now I've talked, I'm jumping all over, I know, But to understand Jesus' sermon, we need to understand something about the first century people of Nazareth who heard what Jesus said. And those people knew their Bible stories by heart. So you have the passage in Luke 4, which Jesus is preaching on a passage in Isaiah 61, which in turn draws on imagery from Leviticus 25. And I don't expect that many of us would have guessed that had we not been told that those four, three passages are connected. But the first century people in Nazareth would have connected what Jesus said to Isaiah 61 and then connected it to Jubilee in Leviticus 25. The Jubilee year was a fundamental pro- fundamentally a process of land reform where the land goes back to its original owners. When Israel took over the land, they divided it out evenly amongst all the families. And you know what happens over over the years. There are people who do really well with their land, and there are other people, either because of laziness or just bad luck, do poorly with their land. And the poor end up selling out their land to the rich. And sometimes they have to sell themselves into slavery to pay for their debts. But every 50 years, the Torah says, All the debts are canceled. All the slaves are set free. Each person and each family is given back their original allotment of land, so the wealth is redistributed again equally, and the process starts itself over again for another 50 years. It would be hard to overstate how radical this sort of law would actually be. Every 50 years, all the people, who have maxed out their credit cards, all the people who are slaving away to keep up with a mortgage that they never should have taken on, everyone's debt is instantaneously canceled. Now, you might think to yourself, hey, those guys that got into debt, they did that on their own stupidity. Whether that's true or not, you need to know that in a God-run economy, allowances are made for people's stupidity, am I right? People do not have to live with the consequences of their bad decisions. Not forever, anyway. Not for more than a generation in the Old Testament. And this is good news to the poor, of course. It's good news that, hey, they don't have to be poor any longer. The whole concept sounds absolutely amazing, doesn't it? The sad part is, it is questionable whether the nation of Israel ever carried out the Jubilee from Leviticus 25. Think about that. From your own knowledge of Bible history, we know where Moses laid down the law of Jubilee, but we never read of any instance where it actually happened. This makes sense, of course, because those people who would have been responsible for seeing that the law was carried out are the ones who have the most to lose from this process. It's like this. There's a man running late for a meeting, and he desperately looks for a parking space. And he prays, oh, Lord, if you can help me find a parking space, I promise I'll go back to church every week and I'll give up my whiskey. And as he says his prayer, the parking space miraculously appears in front of him, and he looks up to heaven and says, oh, Lord, don't even worry about it. I think I just found one. That's how the Israelites did it in Jeremiah 34. They almost had a jubilee. That's the closest they ever got. The people say, Lord, if you get rid of these Babylonians, we'll have a jubilee. We'll free all our slaves and we'll cancel all their debts. And just as the Babylonians are disappearing, they say, oh, actually, Lord, you don't have to worry about it. They've already gone away. So it appears to me in Scripture, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel never actually had a literal jubilee. But the hope, the hope that one day there'd be this great leveling out, the hope still remained. One day, they hoped there'd be real equality. One day, they hoped they'd be, people would be free from the consequences of their own historic mistakes. One day, all the wealth would be shared equally. One day, the prisoners would go free, and debt would be canceled, and the poor will get a fair shake. And one day, we're all going to live in genuine peace with one another. And so Isaiah takes up this image of the Jubilee that he's speaking about with the work of the coming Messiah. And Isaiah starts to say, no, it's the Messiah that's going to bring this kind of justice, real justice, real equality, real peace. The Messiah will bring the good news to the poor. Isaiah's jubilee vision of freedom and equality is no longer by that stage just a simple process of land reform. Isaiah has grown this vision a little bit bigger, and it's taken on a new meaning for the people who are captive in Babylon. These people are now going to get their land back from the Babylonians, and there's a binding up of the brokenhearted in Isaiah 61, which is an expansion of the original Jubilee vision. And even so, Isaiah's Jubilee still includes all the fundamental elements of Leviticus 25, the sharing, the equality, the justice, the peace. And then you have Jesus over in Luke 4 who picks up Isaiah's vision and this prophecy. He reads it out loud and says, proclaims the acceptable year of the Lord, sits down and says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So was Jesus in Luke chapter 4 initiating the Mosaic land reform of Leviticus 25? Well, not literally because we know that by the time you get to Luke chapter 4, the vision of Jubilee has now grown even bigger than it was in Isaiah. The vision has evolved into something bigger for Isaiah. And then with Jesus, the Jubilee vision grew again. If you read Jesus' proclamation, you'll see that Jesus' Jubilee includes a phrase that's not in Isaiah 61. Jesus added, recovery of sight for the blind. I once was blind, but now I see. Jesus added that phrase, in Luke 4. It's not in Isaiah 61. This is a dimension that was added to Isaiah's vision. There's physical healing taking place in Jesus's jubilee. And as we know, there's a whole lot more than that, too. There's forgiveness of sins taking place in Jesus's jubilee. There's a renewal of the individual taking place in Jesus's jubilee. And even with all the old elements of the Moses vision that are still there, too, there's sharing, there's equality, there's justice, there's peace, the, fair, the poor are going to now get a fair go and the debts will be canceled and the slaves are freed. This is the gospel. What part of the gospel is it? It's all of it and more. More than just evangelism and justice. It's all that and more. Jesus's jubilee is a holistic vision that envelopes individuals and communities. It's the very fabric of the world itself that Jesus is wrapping up here. All things becoming new is Jesus's jubilee kingdom, and that is good news for the poor and the dispossessed who have been suffering in a world through injustice and global violence. It's good news to those whose lives are falling apart through sin and guilt and need a new beginning this is good news for those who turn to jesus in faith and commit themselves to help build the jubilee kingdom that jesus had started we each are guilty of having a bias towards evangelism or a bias towards justice and to hold too tightly to your bias is a mistake of making Jesus' jubilee too small. I am so grateful for the Evangelical Covenant Church, the denomination that we're a part of, and the comprehensive work that they do around the world. The Covenant Church has never been an either-or type of a denomination. We are a both-and, evangelism-and-justice denomination, and we don't have to dream on too small of a scale. The early Covenanters were called mission friends. They never quite had enough money in their church budget. But those poor Swedish immigrants always pooled their resources together for the mutual aid of a stranger in a strange land, and to their credit, They pooled it for the purpose of spreading the gospel and extending God's love far beyond their own community. And to this day, covenanters across the world believe that we are called to the whole mission of the church. That means evangelism and Christian formation, as well as ministries of compassion and justice in the face of suffering and oppression. We believe that they can be done together. Individuals within a congregation believe this. Congregations with conferences and denominational help believe this through local, national, and um, worldwide ministries and commitments. We are committed to the whole mission of the church. You can attend another church somewhere here in Lincoln, and they will elevate evangelism and discipleship Or you will attend a church that elevates justice ministries. And this one drops down, but here in the covenant, they are equal and they are both and and together. You can be awfully proud that we hold these two equally in tension. This is the kind of kingdom that God invites us to. This is the kind of church we want to be, a church that helps a person deal with their immediate needs and addresses spiritual sin. It's the gospel both shared and demonstrated. Now, I want you to picture one more thing. Imagine a really long table down the center aisle. I don't care if it's wood, plastic, but it goes far beyond the, do- the red doors. It just keeps going as far as you can see. It's long. It's simple. If you need to imagine this, And you need to close your eyes, go for it, because I really want you to see this long table in the center of our aisle. There's food on the table, and there's seats on either side of this table. And it's going to go as far as you can see. And some of the seats are filled, but some of the seats are empty. And there are people who are coming to this table, and there's people who are still standing around the table chatting with each other. Can you see it? Are you picturing it? The table represents the kingdom of God, which includes us, the church. The filled seats represent the people who have made decisions to join in God's kingdom and follow God through forgiveness of sins and the acceptance of forgiveness. The unfilled seats represent the people who have yet to do that. Now evangelism is about helping people find their place at the table. We can bring them to the table, we can invite them to sit down, but we cannot make them sit down and fellowship at the table. The work of the Holy Spirit is what makes them sit down, and it's the choice of the individual. We cannot force it. But there are people who are sitting at this table. You might be one of them. And there are people who are standing around the table in proximity, but they're not yet sitting. And they all have the same thing in common. Every single person has a need. Could be financial, educational, relational, material, emotional, maybe it's a spiritual need. God is expecting the church to meet those needs. God is expecting us to meet them. And I don't mean that we have to meet all the needs. We can't do that. And once we learn to accept that we can't do it all, we can be free to meet the needs we can meet the ones that God wants us to meet. Justice is about meeting those needs in Jesus' name. One of the things that made Jesus so angry with the religious people of his day was that they were always long on talk and short on action, and justice is about putting our faith and our talk out on the street and making a difference in practical ways. I'm going to invite our musicians forward. Look at this table in your mind. What if we could imagine a future for our church where we are better equipped to engage our community, engage our neighborhood, our workplaces, our school, our families with the good news of Jesus Christ? What if we stopped separating evangelism and justice and we brought them together at this long imaginary table? This is the future of our church. Can we make it a reality? You are the light of the world. Let your words and your actions shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise our Heavenly Father. Amen.